3: The Bayeux Tapestry ranks as surely one of the most famous pieces of medieval artwork. Yet it's not actually a tapestry, and it probably wasn't made in Bayeux. It tells the story of the Norman Conquest, but misses out some crucial details, including two of the three big battles fought in England in 1066. It features sex and violence, myths and fables, and even has the hand of God. We don't know how it ends. But we do know that it's supposed to be coming to the UK on loan from Normandy at some point in the next few years. So now is the time to really get to grips with the tapestry story in our new History Extra podcast series, Unraveling the Biotapestry. Join me, David Musgrove, tapestry expert, Professor Michael Lewis, and a panel of other leading historians, including Michael Wood and Janina Ramirez, for our exclusive five-part series. Available to listen to now at historyextra.com forward slash...
0: How do I love thee, let me count the ways. These are some of the most famous lines of English poetry, and the life of the woman behind those lines was just as extraordinary as her writing. Joining me today to discuss the Victorian poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning is Fiona Sampson, whose new biography of Barrett Browning, Two-Way Mirror, is released tomorrow for any listeners who may either not have heard of Elizabeth Barrett Browning or might not know anything about her particularly, how would you start us off by introducing her?
4: Yeah, Elizabeth is a really striking phenomenon. She's a 19th century writer who was world famous in her era. She was pretty world famous when I was a student but she has disappeared with alacrity from the canon and that's really astonishing because not only was she incredibly influential as a writer, uh, she really changed the course of poetry, she influenced a huge number of very famous other writers, she was also a campaigner for the most progressive causes of her day and on top of that she did all of this while living with long-term health and disability issues, and quite a lot of social prejudice, particularly around the fact she was a woman. So she's
0: a real role model, as well as having left us a huge body of wonderful writing. Um, As you mentioned there, that she's perhaps not been included as much in the canon as you might assume. Why do you think that might be? Well, I think she
4: made a mistake of marrying another person poet um <laughs> I do think that even our most intelligent literary critics have a tendency to think there can't be two great writers in one household it reminds me a little bit of uh Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner you know you can't have two pioneers of abstract expressionism in one household so you concentrate on Jackson Pollock and there's a simple accident that um by marrying Browning she took his surname so she stopped being Elizabeth Barrett Barrett which is what she was for her first books and she became Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And you know, the, the label is masculine, isn't it? Mm. And then on top of that, you have um things like Robert Browning being Browning and Tennyson being the canonical Victorian poets who um, for example, on the on the Oxford syllabus, um when I was an undergraduate, you, you could choose, if you could be, quotes, modern, either Elliot and Auden or Browning and Tennyson. And believe you me, I'm not 200 years old. So, I mean, you know, this is really recent, in you know, educational history. And so generations of that quite powerful cohort who went to Oxbridge were taught that Browning was the real poet and Elizabeth was this kind of accidental wife or this woman who came along with him. Whereas, of course, as I'm sure we're going to discuss, she was
0: actually the senior literary partner when they were together. Um, so, of course, you're a poet as well as a biographer yourself. So, how would you characterise Elizabeth Barrett Browning's work and what are some of her greatest pieces of writing? Ah, thank you for mentioning that, Ellie. Yes, because when I say she's a role model, I do think she's in
4: general a role model, but she's also a role model for me personally. She is a lyric poet. But she was a great modernizer. She came right at the end of Romanticism and she was a big fan of the Romantics. I mean, when she was a girl, she wanted to be Byron or, anyway, to marry him. (laughs) She also loved Shelley's work. She thought Adonis was an exquisition, as she said. and, and, and when she moved to Italy as a, later on in her marriage, she and Robert very much wanted to walk in the footsteps of the great romantics. But she herself came from a different tradition which slightly predates the romantics as a writer. She's much more influenced by the kinds of poets like Pope, like Alexander Pope, who are classicists, who are bringing classical meter into English. She was obsessed with Greek prosody, and she—I think—she wanted to be a great classicist in her twenties, and that rather sort of put her poetic development not to one side, but it certainly got in the way, I'd say. Um, so there's this whole other music that comes into her poetry, but at the same time, although that's an old-fashioned music, it's ancient Greek. She was a modernizer. Her, her writing is much more informal in register than the romantics it's much more intimate her subject matter is domestic she's often storytelling she has a lot of persona poems it's much more conversational and um, less abstract more grounded in experience even if fictional experience Um, and she was also very, very cheeky with rhyme which is something that's close to my heart because my own rhymes are notorious for being you know I tend to rhyme I don't know bath and battle, you know. I mean, I'm, my rhymes are just extraordinary. <laughs> and um, and she, she's like that too. So she wrote lyric poetry, which really shifted poetry from this kind of, I mean, obviously I love romantic poets, but, you know, from the kind of abstraction, you know, Shelley writing a poem, A Hymn to Intellectual Beauty or um, The Triumph of Life, these are poems about the great things and they're not autobiographical and they're not fictional anyway. They don't start here and now with somebody in a place. Um, we think of the romantics as writing descriptive poetry, but, and obviously Wordsworth did, for example, but that's increasingly not the case as, as, as the second generation comes along keeps too. I mean, he's writing, okay, he writes an ode to a Grecian urn or, or an ode to a Skylark, but really they're abstract thought. They're extraordinary cascades of abstract thought. Elizabeth is writing for a much wider audience. She's writing as adult literacy is becoming increasingly widespread. The ragged schools are taking place. Um, the old recreation of reading aloud, uh, sort of around the family hearth, is no longer confined to the upper classes, but is becoming middle class, and they're you know the increasing you know emergence of kind of white collar communities like Clarks and so on. So this much, much wider readership. The same kind of wide audience who were reading Dickens as he was published in Serial are reading Elizabeth. as so she's published in Serial because of course she published in magazines as well as in book form. She's writing for the folks back home. She's not writing for an elite, a kind of cutting edge. She is cutting edge in her techniques, but her techniques are about accessibility. And then one last thing I will just say is that alongside the lyric poetry, and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of her themes, um, she wrote in, uh, as she turned 50, she published a great, uh, her masterpiece, I think, Aurora Lee. She wrote um, a verse novel in nine books, which is fascinatingly, although it's not autobiographical, it's a story of how a woman becomes a poet. So it's the first Bildungsroman, the first how a person develops a personality, sentimental education, but it's also the first kunst the Roman, the first story of how a woman becomes an artist ever to be written.
0: You mentioned there that it's not strictly autobiographical. And I think there's often a tendency with uh, literary bi- biographies to try and identify themes in the author's life in their work. Can we see any of that with Elizabeth Barrett Browning it's a really good question and a really tricky one because obviously if
4: you're a biographer at some, at some level, you are trying to go beyond the page. You are saying there's more to know. I guess my question as a biographer is um, not so much is the work really a mirror of her life as what must it have been like to be her? What was it that she was that allowed her to make this work? hmm And um, I think that looking at 19th century women writers, obviously, by definition, they're outliers. Um, And so you are looking for something that's, what made the difference? She wasn't the only intelligent or gifted woman. What made the difference that she had the courage or the something else that put together her gifts with, other personality traits like determination that kept her going because she had to be an autodidact because she was a woman in the 19th century. So looking at that, how did she manage that? Some of that's happenstance. She came from an extremely well-off family and her father had a library, but there were other upper-class women whose fathers also had libraries. What about her willpower, which is also demonstrated by the way she lived with illness How does that play into the the long apprenticeship she served? I mean, she's a real illustrator of, you know, um, Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers, that 10,000 hours of of work that have gone into making her a poet. Um, So I think it's sort of trying to find not the trick of it, but why and where she came from. and of course, as you say, rightly say, so, that's particularly doubled with lyric poetry, because we tend to think that the iron in a lyric poem is autobiographical. We think that poets just express themselves. And of course, speaking as a poet, nothing could be further from the truth. There's an enormous amount of artifice and labour and one hopes skill that's gone into transforming experience.
0: It's just too convenient, isn't it, to want the themes to mirror the life perfectly. But I think one of the most interesting aspects of your biography is this idea of embodiment, as you call it, and the fact that Elizabeth's life and work was very much shaped by her body. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about how you uncovered that and and what you mean by that.
4: Mm, Thank you. Yes, I think that there are three main areas of embodiment for Elizabeth. One is her gender one is her health and the one is and the third is ethnicity so starting with gender from a very young age she she was conscious that she didn't really want to be a girl because she hated the restrictions on on women's lives she loved she was a tomboy she loved riding her pony um i mean actually she, when you hear descriptions of her from other people as a girl and as a teenager, she's very, as we would say, feminine, very charming, uh, s- sparky, a little bit flirtatious. But she hated the idea that that was then the cultural norm, that she had to be frail, that the, what was valued about women was frailty and restriction and inhibition. She wanted to be free. She wanted to ride to... Uh, the rescue of the balkans and f- liberate them from the ottoman empire she 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 wanted a man's life and she wanted to be a published writer she wanted to be homer and if she couldn't be homer she wanted to be the female homer who might even outstrip him and there's something so joyous about that the sca- the scope of her ambition and the kind of disinhibition about it. It's, it. it You know, it's a joy to read her early writing and her writing looking back on that time and, and one wishes that for her and one wishes it for, you know, <laughs> other young women too. So I think that's part of the way that she was a rarity in her time in publishing under her own name as a woman. So most of her peers, so she's sort of, she comes between Austen who published as a lady. So people knew she was a woman. Her readership was assumed to be female, but she has a dignity of anonymity. And the Bronte's and George Eliot, who are writing pseudonymously as men. And um, alone among them, Elizabeth is writing as a woman and putting her name on the title page. And that's really early. And probably one of the reasons she could do that was because she was so wealthy. She was insulated by enormous family wealth. And latterly, because she went to. Um, Europe. So she was kind of distanced from the bitchery, as it were, of the literary world, although she had terrible sexist reviews. Mm -hmm. And indeed, she writes about them in Aurora Lee. um, And she indeed had other restrictions that were sort of gender-led, I think. Did she get any backlash socially
0: for writing under her own name?
4: Yes, exactly. What's interesting is she didn't. And I think that that's because She was so insulated and she was insulated by the wealth. And of course, she was also insulated by the next problem, which was her health, because she lived a lot of her life effectively in lockdown until she was 40. And she secretly married Robert Browning and they went off to Italy together. She had been ill really for most of her adult life. And in any case, it would have been a very confined life because, you know, she they didn't leave rural, rural Herefordshire until she was, you know, in her early 30s. And they, they lived on the South Coast and then they were living in London. But, you know, it, class meant that she, there was a very, a huge limits to what she was allowed to do. The family trope was also to be shy. Her father was very strict and there was an increasing sort of, kind of reinforcement of that shyness. So there wasn't that much socially going out and about. And then she was confined to her room for years at a time by chronic um, ill health. And so all of these things meant that she was completely insulated. So she was, in a way for her readers, she wasn't, she was a character on the page too. She wasn't a real person. And then once she was in Italy, well, she was abroad and she was a kind of, in a sense, a radical bohemian, although she didn't actually live a bohemian life. So again, she, she was kind of free. She had a chronic um, lung condition. Um, I don't think she had TB because um, she didn't have other symptoms and because she lasted, she lived so long with it and she had periods of great remission. I mean, in one has to remember that in the early century, and of course, we're reminded of it by the pandemic, but without a cure, there are other things that other lung diseases can kill you as well as um, as well as TB, and I think she probably just had really bad asthma and really bad bronchitis. I mean, like Proust in his last years, you know, he lived in a cork lined room because he had such bad asthma. Well, without steroid inhalers and without antibiotics for every time you have a chest infection, every time you catch a cold, you know, these things like these things can kill you.
0: In terms of her illness how do you see that because obviously it meant that she spent a lot of time isolated um which to me says a lot of time to write and not many distractions but then of course on the other hand did it hinder her because there were times where she couldn't write because she was so ill how do you see it yes it did i mean there were
4: there was a lot, i mean i think the traditional idea probably put about by the bals of wimpole street you know rudolf beziers sort of melodrama which it has had so much influence because it was a Broadway hit, because it's been three films and seven TV dramas, you know, all of that huge cultural influence, um, was that she kind of wasn't really that ill and she used illness as an excuse. But I think it's the opposite, because when you actually read her letters, you know, you you discover how hugely frustrated she was, that at times she just didn't feel well enough to write at all. I mean, for for, you know, months at a time. She also was very aware that she was in a prison and couldn't meet her contemporaries. And she had doctors, particularly when she was in Torquay, when she went to Torquay for her health in 1839 to 41. And she sort of was, that was the first time she was head of her own household and she had siblings keep her company. Um, She had doctors who were very kind to her. I mean, obviously very supportive in the way of doctors, but who forbade her to write and you know that classic thing which of course happened to virginia woolf too you know you mustn't you mustn't right you have a physical illness but it's somehow made worse by a kind of as it were brain fever which doesn't endanger the health of men but endangers the health of women mm-hmm. and so you know she didn't even have that to do and she didn't have lots of other hobbies because she hated the feminine accomplishments of of sewing and embroidery and lace making so she you know she 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 was very funny about how bad she was at them so her passions were reading and writing and forbidden them she was you know i think she had real long years when you know nothing happened day after day for for yeah for months at a time so i think the illness held her back because Although she would have also had to do take more household responsibility, particularly the eldest daughter mm. of the three of them, if she had not been ill. She, you know, they came from an immensely privileged family. Those household duties would not have been, she wouldn't actually be doing any cooking or cleaning, you know, she would just have been supervising the servants. So I mean, as Jane Austen did. So I don't think that, I don't think that her ill health brought her any privileges actually and of mm. course when she first fell ill when she was 15 you know she had this mysterious illness you know she was isolated in a spinal sling for in Gloucester for about nine months. And what exactly is a spinal sling? Well she doesn't seem to have been in the kind of device that actually stretched you because there were some of those around too but you were sort of held suspended. A bit like a hammock yes but with kind of apparatus keeping it keeping you straight not stretching you but keeping you straight um so i mean enormously uncomfortable and of course sat on your back as she says so you know you couldn't read i mean you had to be read too you didn't even have that and I'm, I'm making the gesture of holding a book up above my head which of course one can't you know one can't do for more than five minutes at a time um and you know you 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 lose you know lose muscle wastage i mean you you emerge from nine months flat on your back as you know even if and a broken leg in the old days. You're you're not you're not able to walk with ease. And so there's a kind of huge wastage of her strength at that point, from which he really didn't recover or didn't recover with ease, because the spine was thought of as not just musculoskeletal, but as the seat of illness, because so little was understood about health at the time. So and it, was, it was seen as the seat of any grey systemic illness. So she believed she had this really nasty diagnosis, even though to our reading eyes now, it seems incredibly foggy as to what it was. Um, so she was, you know, she would have been very afraid.
0: And she was immobilised. I
4: mean, incredibly frustrating.
0: Yeah. The other point that you mentioned earlier was ethnicity. So There has been debate over the years about what exactly um, Elizabeth's ethnicity or uh, was or heritage. How do you see it? And why do you think that it's something that's important to raise or discuss?
4: I think it's hugely important because I do think, you know, it's really important to to honour, but also to rediscover the tradition of black writing, um, which, you know, in this country. Um, So, I haven't been able to discover anything that suggests that um, Elizabeth's heritage was actually mixed, but there are two big buts. One is that she believed it was, and the other is that uh, very close relations did have mixed heritage. So her her father was um, from Jamaica, but... Passed as operating as white, and there is nothing in his immediate ancestry that is not white. But her father's brother and several of her own brothers um, married women or slept with women or cohabited with women, all those three of mixed heritage or who were black and had children who were. Of mixed heritage, and Elizabeth believed herself to be of mixed heritage because she was well aware that Jamaica had a pretty disgusting social history, and her ancestors were slavers. And although, as an adult, she would go on to be an active campaigner for the abolition of slavery, and she wrote an astonishing anti-slavery poem called, you know, "The Runaway Slave at Pilgrim Point." which is, you know, kind of hair-raising even today because it's also about sexual violence, um, you know, as part of that whole um, well, the whole crime of slavery. She, you know, nevertheless, her family had been slavers. And she wrote to Robert in her courtship letter, so when, when she's 39 turning 40, about the cursed, you know, the blood of a slave, that she had the blood of a slave and that they were cursed, not because she was racist, but because she thought that to be a slave was to, you know, she was right, to be a slave was appalling. And she was well aware by then that her family had been on Jamaica for generations and there is enough sexual violence going on for it to be a reasonable assumption that somewhere in that family tree, you know, one of her ancestors was of mixed heritage. But we can't prove it, so we can't make that claim for her. But what we can say is that she wrote believing that she was BAME, as we would say today. And she may indeed have experienced some social prejudice as Clearly, her father and her uncle did, when, for example, when they were at school, um, because other people around
0: her may have believed her to be of mixed heritage. I was intrigued to read in the book that she wasn't only interested in the cause of abolition, but also she was quite anti-imperialist in her writing. And as you say um, in the book, this was really quite forward-thinking for the time.
4: Yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, anti you know imperialism wasn't even you know coined as a term yet. Um you know, in many ways, Elizabeth was a an absolutely echt Victorian, a true Victorian. You know, she believed in the moral purposes of art, she believed in family and family values, she was a monarchist in, in our country, <laughs> but she was also a fierce believer in self-determination, which I think she was drawn in by her own experience of self-determination. I don't think she quite understood, you know, economics and the implications of privilege and class, but she was a fierce believer in, um, the end of empire, national independence. She was, um, she, 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 even before she was an active abolitionist, she was writing about, um, the crime of, of, uh, the white slavers, um, in the Caribbean, she was horrified by the Sikh war and, you know, British, the extent of British Empire in in that direction. And she said, you know, this isn't, you know, the Victorian idea of, you know, let's provide enlightenment or whatever, you know, the imperial fantasy is and, and, you know, help these people. On the contrary, it's, you know, it's, you know, we have blood on our hands and it's an abomination. She had been very pro the end of the Ottoman Empire, of course, when she was young and overarchingly for all of her life once she left Britain from once she was 40, you know, she was passionately in the cause of uh, Italian independence, Italian democracy, Italian republicanism. So Italy at that time is under the sway of the Habsburg Empire, at least northern Italy is. And, you know, she's passionately in favour of reunification and which, of course, is you know, national self-determination is a rather romantic trope, but she's passionately in favour. She's passionately in favour of the rights of ordinary Italian people, um, and writes um, a great deal about it. So, she writes *Casa Guidi Windows*, which is about the first stirrings of kind of independence and democracy, and that's um, published in 1851. And uh, then she, which is in two parts the first part inc- passionately pro revolution the second part well actually we have noticed that some of the outcomes of the french revolution are that it's not quite so great for people with lots of money so let's moderate our impulses a little bit but still it's the book that brings the, the plight of ordinary italians to the attention of british the attention of ordinary, again, British readers, because, you know, in a time without rolling news channels and so on, this is all very small and far away for British popular opinion. And then her last book, apart from her posthumous poems, is Poems Before Congress, which is published in 1860, which is, again, um, that's a collection of poems rather than, you know, one long poem, but a lot of the poems are passionately political and they're a, they have to do with... Britain being more interested in keeping its access to fair trade, free trade, than in supporting the cause of Italian freedom and so on. So, she she earned a lot of bad press in Britain for that collection post before Congress. But you know, she definitely used her her reputation because you know by the time she's before she even leaves for Italy, but particularly after she's left for Italy. I mean, she's she has, as we were saying, become, you know, really internationally famous. She has a huge readership and, and therefore sway. She has a huge influence on kind of mainstream opinion, particularly in Britain. And she uses it systematically throughout her writing life. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She's lucky in the sense that she doesn't marry him until she already has a reputation. It's much easier to fight for your writing when you're world famous than if you're starting out, when who knows whether it's going to come to anything.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match
2: That's betterhelp.com slash history extra.
0: We've got really quite far through this conversation without going into a lot of depth about one of the things that I think has been most discussed when we're talking about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which is her relationships, particularly with her father and with Robert Browning. So I wonder if we could turn to that now. So of course, her her relationship with her father was one of the central and and most complex relationships in her life, which could be quite tricky to characterize. How did you see that relationship?
4: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting relationship because I think it's a close relationship in a close family. And I think it's a rather sad story of something going wrong. Because I think Elizabeth's father, Edward Barrett, Malton Barrett, give him his full name, um, was a real family man and an idealist you know he had been sent away from home to school I mean across the Atlantic as a small child at the age of sort of six and he was rootless I mean he didn't there wasn't a family home in Britain although his mother did you know rent a house in in in, in Marylebone in London, in West London and When Elizabeth was three, he bought this big estate in Herefordshire and settled into becoming, creating an ideal home. So he built a huge mansion and he became sheriff for the county, Lord Lord Lieutenant for the county, which is a kind of honorary position. But it's it's really entering into gentry, entering into the life of. The, the county gentry when in fact of course he's a blow-in and his money is not aristocratic money it's dirty money it's dirty money because it's from slavery and it's dirty money because it's industrial um and i'm sure that he wanted to you know he hoped that, that there would be a title that would follow eventually and that the house would be inherited and so on and then um a sort of second cousin contested the will of for which he had inherited, I mean, many years before. In other words, he contested all the wealth that he had, but that he had also built up. And really, a bit like Bleak House, I mean, he spent years going through chancery to try and sort this out. And he and he wasn't ruined by any of the rest of our standards, but he was radically impoverished. And I think that that experience was very embittering for him. Apart from the else, he had to leave the stately home that he had built. And indeed it was his own, you know, they were his own designs. I mean, pretty ropey designs, if you ask me, but I mean, surviving photos, it looks extraordinary. (laughs) Doesn't add up at all, but, you know, it was his fantasy, his great creation, along with the 12 children he had with his wife, one of whom died in early childhood, but 11 lived into adulthood and so on. So, you know, so he had to move them away and that kind of huge symbolic failure really, And before that happened, already his wife had died, and I think it had been a real love match, his wife. And so this kind of creeping, these creeping forces, on the one hand, you know, massive bad luck sort of financially and emotionally sustained over many years, you know, getting worse over many years, um, increasing complexity of life because, of course, the abolition of slavery had made a difference to his fortunes, but also had made long-range management of estates on the other side of the Atlantic, harder and harder to do. Well, one doesn't have sympathy for him for this, but, you know, nevertheless, he had incurred a whole lifestyle and a way of life based on that income. Um, His family were growing up. He didn't really know what to do. He wanted to keep them around him because at least he had that achievement. Um, Increasing kind of religious fundamentalism. And then his eldest daughter, so Elizabeth, his first child, had always been his favourite. I mean, she—he encouraged her to write from when she was six. He called her the poet laureate of Hope End, <clears throat> which was a family house, and um, she indeed therefore took that seriously and wrote odes to for every family occasion. He paid for her first book to be published for as a 14th birthday present, the Battle of Marathon. He helped subsidise the publication of her next book, which was actually subsidised by another family member, but he really encouraged her to write. He encouraged her translations um, to, to be published. So he was incredibly supportive and proud. And obviously, particularly after her mother died, he... In some ways, he wanted her to be his twin soul. I don't mean there was anything at all sexual or dodgy going on. I don't think so at all. I mean some sort of melodramatic readings have said that. I don't. I think that's completely to miss the point. This is an emotional and intellectual drama, and because Elizabeth was the invalid, she really fitted the stereotype of the angel in the house—the kind of repository of prayer and good feelings—and you know, she couldn't act out or get anything wrong or do anything wrong because she was confined to her room being pale and interesting and he used to go and pray with her every night and so on and then of course despite all this secretly behind his back she had this 18 months courtship and in the end because he wouldn't let any of his children marry all his children
0: married against his wishes behind his back or after he died. So was he explicit in that, that he didn't want any of them to marry? He just always had a great excuse. He couldn't let go. And he couldn't let go, not because he hated them, but because he was needy and he loved them.
4: And so, um, you know, it wasn't just Elizabeth. I mean, her next sister, Dan, Henrietta, had, had, um, had a suitor who was was open family knowledge because he was kind of a second cousin, Sertis, and eventually she married him against her father's wishes and he excommunicated her too. But the siblings by then realised this was a pattern. The boys had illicit affairs. Um, One did marry before his father's death and he like Henrietta and Elizabeth. So Henry, Henrietta and Elizabeth were all cut out of the will. They were all disowned by their father for marrying. Um, so, you know, any notion that it was because Elizabeth married a younger man who was a poor poet, or no, it was a... And she'd re- she finally realised this. And the other thing he did, of course, was prevent any opportunities. So it wasn't just Elizabeth who was kept at home and not allowed to go to the ball. I mean, literally allowed to go to any balls or to meet young men it was all three girls so yeah. you know it was a kind of passive aggressive he was very he was passive aggressive i think he was a weak man he, his confidence was destroyed and he tended to try and make his decisions by just making it impossible for the opposite to happen rather than actually owning his decisions and saying i forbid you and he did that time after time you know they tried out there in london clearly it, it was polluted and full of smog and wasn't good for Elizabeth's health. But despite the fact their move had been, let's just see, nevertheless, they stayed, you know, every time there was a move, he left it very much till after the last minute, somewhat like politicians one can think of today. You know, he couldn't own his decisions. Um, He just tried to let them play out. I mean, when Elizabeth went back to um, Wimpole street from having gone down to Torquay to, you know, for the sea air to try and try and get her health back. Um, and it became apparent that she couldn't survive the climate in London. You know, she needed her doctors, she she was consult she was consulting the doctor who was the Queen's own physician, you know, couldn't have been a better doctor, um, who said she needed to go south for her health. She needed to go to Italy, she needed to go somewhere where the air was warm and dry and unpolluted. And her father just kept prevaricating, prevaricating so that she missed the last possible sailing date. And that was kind of what he did. He kept prevaricating, prevaricating so that his daughters you know, in a sense, got to an age where he must have thought they were safely on the shelf, which is why Elizabeth and Henrietta both married so extraordinarily late. Mm-hmm. I mean, particularly for women in Victorian times. woman in Victorian times you're practically on the shelf at 21, weren't you? You know, and they were early 40s before they were
0: able to marry. I mean, extraordinary. It sounds like a very claustrophobic environment and i think that that's part of the reason why this love story between elizabeth and robert browning has been mythologized as one of the great love stories of history but i wonder if you could give us a bit of a sense of of the reality of the relationship and how it progressed yes robert is very interesting
4: because um well obviously he's very interesting he's a great poet <laughs> but um so even despite everything we've said about Elizabeth being in effect locked down by her health and perhaps by her father's fiat too, um, she is of course publishing. So she has a, her first really big success is with the Seraphim in 1838, which gets reviewed everywhere. And although some of the reviews are mixed, it is clearly the must read book. It's absolutely covered everywhere, gets huge coverage. Um, and so she is no, not in person. On the page, she's extremely visible to her peers. And all the writers of the day are interested in reading hers. They are interested in reading each other. And, you know, she is with Tennyson and with Robert Browning, although he is, at the moment when he first makes contact with Elizabeth, actually in abeyance. His career has, he started off with a tremendous early success, but has written such, problematic work but he's become very unfashionable and so on he's sort of seen as having absolutely fallen off from his you know great start um so they they are the three modernizers and they are being read um and so it's not surprising that robert browning reads actually it's not the Seraphim. the book that does it is um poems 1844 um and is really bowled over by it it is a tremendously modernizing exciting huge achievement you know it's again the book of the of their generation to read he doesn't read it when it first comes out because he's away traveling in europe but he reads it when he comes back partly because elizabeth and robert have a mutual friend in he's a kind of distant uncle of a family friend of elizabeth so that he's a John Kenyon, he's a he's a writer and a distinguished sort of literary man about town. He had a literary salon, so he knew all the writers and he knew Robert and he gave Robert the book. So Robert's reaction is to write to Elizabeth and say, I love your verses, Miss Barrett, with all my heart. And as Elizabeth will later say to him, you know, you, you know that word love was like a kind of, you know, angel, enunciating angel, you know, you had me with that. Um, he says, I love your verses, Miss Barrett, with all my heart, and I love you too. It's, you know, someone who who knows how to persuade people. And so they correspond for a little while. I mean, Elizabeth is both flattered, and at the same time, she she feels she's being toyed with. And Robert has a kind of young man's impatience. He doesn't quite realize that she might have feelings too, partly because she's the more famous. So she's 39 and he's 33 at this point. He's six years younger than her. But he persuades Elizabeth to meet him. He persuades her to let him come and call. And of course, calling means going up to her bed sitting room. So he is allowed to call after a few months and, and they talk and it's obviously great straight away, sort of at first sight. And, one of, not only is Robert very bold with his first letter, but very soon he's saying, you know, you know let's get married. At the same time as believing that she is so profoundly um disabled that they would never be able to have sex and have a family or anything. So he's just saying, he says, I would be like a brother to you. Um, Little realising that's not at all what she has in mind. <laughs> and um so there is this kind of very um tentative courtship because it becomes... On the one hand, it's very full on, you know, he's calling twice a week and there are a huge number of letters, but it's also very one step forward, one step back, because the practical obstacles seem insurmountable, because it seems that she's bed-bound. So how on earth can she even escape her father's house? Um, therefore, how can they even have non-secret meetings and so on? I mean, it's... it's but the same time she begins to get her strength back she begins to go for carriage rides she begins to go out she begins to even take short walks um and she reveals to Robert that she has enough money of course that's how she funded Torquay to she's of independent means she isn't dependent on her father because of course the other reason the way that Edward kept all his adult children close was that it wasn't just disowning them wasn't just a sort of paper exercise. They were absolutely financially dependent on him. In a time with no welfare state or anything, I mean to leave, to dissipate would be to lose everything. So in order to marry, their their spouses had to have means to support them. But Elizabeth has been gifted money by her uncle, her late uncle, who for whose favourite she was, and by her grandmother. And so it puts her in this really unusual position for a Victorian woman, of having independent means. And so when she tells Robert this, Robert says, well, then I've got no doubt we should run away together. And gradually, first of all, they think they can both go to Italy at the same time if they're separate households, but Elizabeth's father vetoes her going to Italy for her health. And then gradually, they realise that the only thing they can do is to go away together. And they're kind of half fantasy, whatever. Who knows how serious they are? And then Edward Barrett and now he says he's taking the whole family away to the English countryside because Wimpole Street needs doing up. And, and Robert realises that if Elizabeth goes to the countryside, that'll be it for another winter. And she probably won't survive the winter. And anyway, it'll be a whole other six months. the kind of, it then becomes a fantasy. So he says, okay, it's now or never. And she says, you must decide. So he decides. And they get married within a week.
0: And then a week later, they run away secretly. The question I had actually about their relationship was how, to what extent was it an artistic and literary partnership as well as a romantic one? Did they influence each other's work?
4: Yes, they did. I mean, it was a hugely, I mean, I think it started in a, with a, you know, with a literary connection. And I think that continued because not only were they quite self-consciously traveling to make the writer's life, you know, you can see it from Elizabeth's letters at home. Um, and, you know, there's a point where there's a kind of celebrity equivalent of a kind of Hello! magazine interview where um, a, a journalist goes and visits them at that car's agreed that, they've made, that Elizabeth has made famous and meets the charming son and so on. Um, but it's also apparent in the work. It, I don't think Robert influenced Elizabeth. Elizabeth influenced Robert because you have to remember that she's the famous one. She's the one who's much further ahead in her practice at this point. And it's from Elizabeth that Robert learns this technique of persona poems, this kind of much more relaxed language that makes here like the, the, the poems of men and women, which is where Robert, for me, Robert Browning really becomes Robert Browning, um, makes it such a huge success. And it's not a huge success at the time, but it's become a huge success since and laid, lays the groundwork for his whole success. So I think that he took her project and ran with it, particularly posthumously.
0: And it seems to me that perhaps even if he didn't influence her artistically, marrying him really transformed her life, didn't it? In terms of the, the lifestyle that she lived was completely different in these two sections of her life. Absolutely.
4: She she went, you know, as as you're saying here from lockdown, you know, life to n- digital nomad. I mean she, you know, absolute transformation to yes, you're absolutely right. She writes these extraordinarily happy letters home. I mean it's clearly a sexual relationship. It but she's loving the food, you know, typical Brit abroad. She's loving the Italian food. She's loving the sunshine. She's loving being able to walk. She gets extraordinary strength actually it's like a miracle how much healthier she gets she feels um and she falls pregnant and she has after two miscarriages she has a child um who who grows up become pen you know is a is a much loved son and um she has two miscarriages after that, but but still, this has had been an unthinkable possibility for her. So you know, she's in her early forties in Victorian times, with you know no modern obstetrics. It's an, it's an extraordinary achievement, and she feels it as that. So and of course she's a she's exposed to Italian politics. She gets a great cause to be passionate about, and it is during the years from 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 the age of 40 until her death, that she with Robert does have the kind of classic literary life where she they they socialise with everyone well-known, politicians, writers, artists, all the kind of great names of their day, you know, from Rossetti to, um, you know, Robert has lunch with the Prime Minister, you know, that just that there's an enormous sort of cultural reach um, in that, in their personal relationships as well as, you know, with particularly Elizabeth's reputation, but kind of the household reputation. And, of course, Robert is, at the very least, and he was much more than this, but he is someone who encourages her writing like her father rather than being a conventional husband of the time who would have wanted it to disappear into the background, you know, She's lucky in the sense that she doesn't marry him until she already has a reputation. It's much easier to fight for your writing when you're world famous than if you're starting out, when who knows whether it's going to come to anything. Um, but also, you know, she, she she's senior to him as a writer, and it's kind of, they both see that as undeniable and as the most important work that can be done.
0: And yeah, that allows her to write. Speaking about all these different chapters of her life, she's a gift to a biographer, really, isn't she? Where can we see her, her influence and how do you think we should see her legacy today?
4: I think her legacy is more widespread than kind of com- current convention has it. I mean, I do think How Do I Love thee? Let Me Count the Ways is one of the most famous poems in English and it's still, you know, used as in a thousand kind of advertising straplines and headlines and so on. It's it gone into the culture. And I think that's symptomatic of the strength of her writing. She needs to come back into the canon, and I'm sure she will. It's just one of those shifts in fashion. There hasn't been a biography for more than 30 years, despite the fact that she was admired by writers as various as John Ruskin, Oscar Wilde, Roger Kipling. She hugely influenced Virginia Woolf. She hugely influenced Emily Dickinson and inspired her to write. Emily Dickinson admired her enormously. And I think in inspiring Woolf and Dickinson, in a sense, the kind of key George Meredith has this line, actually, it's about Skylights, but, you know, the silver chain of sound, she passed on the kind of chain of the women's tradition, the tradition of women's writing, which isn't a separate or minor tradition, it's part of the great tradition. But we have to kind of keep actively kind of stitching it together where um, casual misogyny just forgets the women writers. I think she suffered as all the Victorian and 19th century women writers tended to in the 1970s in the kind of critical canon making then. So you have Harold Bloom and the Great Tradition, and he really hacked through um, women's writing. So you have the Oxford Anthology of English Literature, which, you know, I grew up with. Uh, handsome, two volumes, something like 3,000 pages uh, Bloom, Trilling, many of the greats are the co-editors. There is practically no women's writing at all in it. Not only is Elizabeth Barrett Browning there, not there, Austin isn't there. None of the Brontes are there except a little bit of a couple of poems by Emily Bronte. I mean, George Eliot isn't there. I mean, it's, it's swinging. And I think we have to remember how recent that you know, that position in the academy is, and therefore all the people who did English degrees, which is therefore all the people who become journalists and literary editors and, you know, get on into life and, and our culture makers make films and so on, you know, how hugely influential that erasure has been. And we just have to put her back in again. And, you know, my last biography was Mary Shelley and everyone's heard of Frankenstein. But even in the bicentennial of that novel, I find myself having to go on the Today programme to rebut some academic, I put inverted commas around it, although they do have a university job, who said, Well, we maybe, maybe it was Percy B. Shelley who wrote most of Frankenstein. This is, even though the manuscript notebooks are free and in the public domain, they're all online in, in facsimile, you can see whose handwriting it is. But this kind of inability to believe, Somehow, that these women did what they did. Oh, it must be rectified or co authored by an editor, or there is some male hand, or else we decide that the writing, without reading it, we decide the writing is just unimportant. And you just have to read the writing to see how good it is. Um, you know, line by line, particularly Aurora Lee, is just extraordinary. If we could get people to just remember that and get back to the beyond this awful kind of parody of oh, well, there was this lady poetess who kind of rather hampered Robert Browning's life, to there was this pioneering and still very influential and wonderfully readable and accessible woman writer who had, who was world famous, had this massive impulse impact on literature and culture in her day. Let's forget that she also wrote against. Uh, forced prostitution and rape and child labour. A huge influence on the li- on on people in her day and literature thereafter. We we would be just closer to the truth, closer to a frankly not very controversial truth.
0: That was Fiona Sampson. Her biography of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Two Way Mirror, is released tomorrow and published by Profile. You can read a feature by Fiona on Elizabeth in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is also on sale tomorrow and includes features on the Western Front, Vikings Under the Microscope and Jerusalem's Crusader Queens. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the Chinese Revolution.